Your pastor and wife and family and so many of you here are just such dear friends. I don't know how long it's been. I know uh, we have been with pastor in several different places. And, uh, I, you know, he's had a chance to lose me. <laughs> but I have been so grateful for their friendship and so grateful for the privilege of sharing with you today. It is such a joy, and we appreciate the wonderful spirit of the Lord that is here today and the opportunity to share his word. We have with us a dear friend who goes back a long ways. You know, you get in trouble if you say old friends. Uh, We've just known her for a long time. (laughs) And uh, she was a part of the school that we were directors and elders of in Genesis back in the 70s and She's had a prayer ministry all over the world. She's quite a remarkable lady. Carol Preston is with us, and we're very happy to have her visiting. She lives over in Bend, and so she was able to be with us. And it's just a joy to be with you today. Back on the table, there are books and CDs, if you're interested in those. The book is Shaping Christian Character. It deals with how we grow as men and women in the wisdom and character of God. Elaine has contributed much to this. There are also CDs of various teaching series that are there. If you would stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. Turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter. I am legally blind because of glaucoma. And so uh, I don't, I, I get the front row here, sort of, but I wouldn't know who is there. I think Elizabeth is there. But I, I really don't see you. Uh, And so, if you'd like to leave, feel free. I won't know the difference. (laughs) Pastors always worry because they know I can't see my watch either, so (laughs) that's a concern. But I'm privileged to have my wife, uh, who travels with me and is a wonderful and amazing reader, uh, read the various portions that I need. Uh, I used to enjoy so much public reading, but it's a now you wouldn't want to go through the the agony of me trying to read even 36 font. So Elaine will do the reading for us at various times. Thank you, honey. Again, we're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, Father, we come to you today. Overwhelmed in your mercy and grace to us. Overwhelmed by the privilege of knowing and hearing the name Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for this wonderful time of worship and the confession of faith of these. Thank you for the leadership and the direction of this congregation and what you have accomplished. And now in the name of Jesus, I ask that by your Spirit that you would teach us. Let nothing of self be established but only your truth that we might become mighty men and women of God in spirit and in truth, capable, able of doing your bidding and will on earth as it is done in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask this, and for your glory only, Father. 
Amen. You may be seated. There's an amazing little thought that Paul gives to us in Galatians, the fourth chapter and the fourth verse. When he just, it's almost like he's throwing it off. And obviously I don't believe that the Holy Spirit ever does that, but I'm fascinated by Paul is very verbose, and thankfully so, because he gives us so much of what we call and understand as the wisdom of the church. And almost offhandedly, he says, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son born of a woman. Now, last night I dealt with the concept of catalyst and the catalyst of change. And one of the things that has to be there in this amazing change that God gave to us when he brought Emmanuel was that his Savior, the work that needed to be done to restore and bring about the wholeness of this universe, that at some day heaven and earth would be joined, is that wholeness, that Savior, had to be born of a woman. Had to be a man. Wouldn't work otherwise. In the fullness of time, God fought for His Son, born of a woman. Amazing thought. Obviously, God planned this. Obviously, this was His purpose and His time. 700 years before that fulfillment, a prophet said, And a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child, and we will call his name Emmanuel. 700 years, folks. One of the things that is so fascinating to me is that I believe God is not a marionette controller, a puppet controller. He works through the free will and choice of mankind and through the situations of life, yet He brings forth His purposes. Now that's God. That's the definition of God. 500 years before the fullness of time, a small city-state known as Rome began to spread its wings, began to exert its force. And before it was completed in 476 A.D., before it fell... It would extend its influence through the entirety of what was called the known world, basically the entirety of Europe and of of at least Western Europe and of the Mediterranean and of Northern Africa and far as to China and the East and India. It was amazing. If you've ever been to Europe, you've probably at least seen, if not driven on some area, that would have been an ancient Roman road. They were about 30 yards wide, in some places more than 12 feet deep, laid on massive stone. The only difference is that in that time they had a crushed gravel that actually paved it. They are phenomenal. They are still there if they haven't been dug up or covered over. They are amazing. Listen to this. The Romans built 56,000 miles of road. 56,000. I had Elaine look it up on the Internet. It's amazing what you can do. You know how many miles of interstate roads we have in the United States? Think of the size of the United States and of the interstates that are everywhere. You know how many miles there are? 65,000. Rome built 56,000 miles of road in the fullness of time. How do you think that gospel spread? 
And the language was not Italian or Hebrew, but was Greek. A language with the amazing nuances and insights and fullness that was needed to transmit the thoughts that were given to the various authors of the New Testament and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they could be full in all of their thinking. You can only communicate your thoughts through words. And this is the tragedy of our culture today. It has been so dumbed down. It has been so maligned with curse words and with stupidity that you cannot communicate adequately. Duh. In the fullness of time, the Mediterranean was known as our sea. The Romans so totally controlled it. There was a little concept that was obviously harsh on some called the Pax Aroma, the Peace of Rome. And if you got out of step, if you got your nose out of joint, the Romans came down on you literally like a ton of bricks. And there was no one ever had been as vicious as the Romans. Why? That the gospel might spread in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, there was a man named Caesar, Julius Caesar. He was truly one of the greatest men of his era and probably of history other than Jesus Christ. He was assassinated at 44, and it set up an incredible civil war within Rome that led to the beginning of the uh, totalitarian type mentality of the Caesars. And one named Caesar Augustus came to power and to force in the fullness of time. And he appointed a tetrarch, a substitute leader for Rome, in northern Africa in a little area there that had just been a literal pain in the neck. Judea and Galilee. These monotheists these Hebrews. And in this, there's no way an alignment against the Jews. They wanted to serve their own God. They wanted to recreate the kingdom of their once great leader, David and Solomon. And so they were always, always, always striving against the Pax Roma. Always. It came to the point that even when Caesar worship became the style of Rome, and you had to pray to Caesar, and he was known by all of the names, the Son of God, the Provider, the Healer. It's, it's amazing to see that Satan is always arising and doing. It came to the point that when this evolved, the Romans finally said, oh, well, all right. You don't have to pray to Caesar, you just have to pray for Caesar to your God. Now, you might think that's sort of, no, it was huge. They could pray for Caesar to their God, not to Caesar. And everybody was fat, dumb, and happy with that. But Herod, Herod the Great, the builder of the temple, the rebuilder of the temple, one of the most massive structures of its era, totally lined in gold. And the Jews just knew that the kingdom was coming. And when this fullness of time had evolved and another one arose, they couldn't handle it. 
They couldn't handle it. Obviously, God has brought us to a point in time. And this is our time. This is our moment on stage. We now have almost 2,000 years that we can look back and see how this has all evolved. We see the warts. We see the high moments. We see the amazing things that have been built in the name of Jesus, some in ego, some as phenomenal places of lifting and bringing worship. We hear of some names that cause us to cringe. We hear of names that are overwhelming in their humility and sacrifice. This is our time. One of the interesting things to me is you don't have any choice on when your time is given. You don't have a choice when it begins. You shouldn't have a choice when it ends. This is God's purpose. You don't have a choice in your gender. Now, some will dispute that, but that is obviously stupidity. You don't have a choice as to how you are born. You don't have a choice as to who will be your parents. Some of us would like to have had a choice. You don't have a choice as to your nationality. You don't have a choice as to where you were born. You don't have a choice. So I cannot ever, ever think that God has planned this. His thoughts to us are more than all the sands of the sea. Do you grasp that? And every morning they are renewed. Every day He considers us. He is worried when two little birds worth less than half a cent If one of them falls to the ground, he knows about it. And it is in the will of the Father if that happens. Now, how much greater are you than two little sparrows? So don't tell me this was not your time, your place, and your circumstance. It is absolutely what God has called you to be. Now, you can either kick against that and get awfully upset and wish that you'd been born somewhere else in the 1800s because that was when it was really swell. Oh, give me a break. Man, if they took away your stove, if they took away your central heaving, if they took away your iPod, you would chafe. You know, imagine what we have It's just amazing. My wife and I, sometimes we say, can you believe this? We can walk over and push a button and heat our house up to as warm as we want it to be. We can go over and push another button, and in one minute you got boiling water in a microwave. Now, some people are nervous about micros in their microwave water. I I don't get into that either or saran wrap over my food. I mean, I just... you believe what we have? I have a little set of speakers there. I mean, literally, they're this big. They fold out. I plug them into my iPod, and it sounds like I have a symphony in our hotel room. I mean, it is just stunning. We have this laptop computer. Wherever we go, we can contact the world wirelessly. I have a phone. I took it out of my pocket. I can call anywhere in the world. Literally. I was in China a couple of years ago, and I get a phone call from a pastor because it was the day that Ohio State was playing in the national championship game. 
And I'd had the phone on, and I, you know, because it was uh, it was all of, I had 90 cents a minute. I mean, it was terrible. But I had it on to check messages, and I usually left it on. The phone rings. I'm sitting in a hotel in Shanghai, China. The phone rings. I pick it up, and he says, "How about that? The beer and pizza must be flowing in Ohio." <laughs> I said, "I don't know," and I always had wanted to say this. I'm in Shanghai, China. I said, it's okay, it's okay. I said, what's happening? And Ohio State was ahead of the first quarter, but they ended up going in the tank and lost it. I don't remember. But I hit a piece of, you know, a piece of plastic that big. Has more memory than the computer I ran back in the 70s. That's our time. I can remember the first television that my family had. And you know why we got it? M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E, Mickey Mouse. I could go on to Howdy Doody and a few others. My kids will never remember a home without a television. They remember when we got our first computer. My grandkids will never remember a home without a computer. And will never remember a home without a cell phone. Isn't it amazing? We have a responsibility, church. We have a responsibility because this is when God called you and me. I know most of you think that I must look to be about 87. I'm not. My time on stage, there's not as much left as I've already lived. In some ways, I want to go, thank God. Wouldn't you have hated to live 800 years like they did in the pre-Diluvian time? Can you imagine how long that would be to brush your teeth every day? Eight years. Goodness. Only what you've done for Christ will last. My time on stage is coming to where there is less than I still have, than I've already had, and I want to say to you: Beware, beware! Oh, Timothy, be a guardian of the church. Be a guardian, for He has called us that we must guard well our hearts. And our minds. First Timothy six that Elaine read. Read that that fifth verse again, or which one, whatever it is. Tw- yeah, twentieth verse again, please. 
First Timothy 6.20 O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Guard. We've been called to be guardians of the church. We have not been called to be guardians of a philosophy of denominational structure or procedure of organizational process within an organization or church. We've not even been called to be a guardian of certain premises or tenets of theology. We certainly have not been called to be guardians of buildings or of certain aspects of possessions. We have been called to be guardians of the gospel to our generation. Because this is the generation that you're prepared to deal with. I am catching myself saying more than than I would like to say, well, maybe it's a generational thing. I just don't get this. I don't really believe it is a generational thing. I just think some people are just stupid. (laughs) Humbly. 1 Timothy 4, 7b and through 10, please. Okay. As he said, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're picking up with the second half of verse 7. Go into training in godliness. Physical exercise, you see, has a limited usefulness, but godliness is useful in every way. It carries the promise of life both now and in the future. That saying is trustworthy. It deserves to be accepted totally. This is what we are working and struggling for, you see, because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, more especially of believers. Bodily exercise profits little. Oh, I like that. My wife and I have both gained, or both gained, both lost a considerable amount of weight in the last 12 months. And people keep saying, how did you do it? Did you exercise a lot? No, don't like to exercise. I used to love to play sports and run and all the rest of that kind of stuff, and now I just run into walls. <laughs> but... Spiritual exercise profits both now and for all of eternity. Do you realize that? It's not just what we are accomplishing at this point in time in our understanding of the Word so that we might share, like I said last night, that we can be a catalyst to those that we touch, that we can accelerate or affect whatever it is of the heart that we touch when we know Jesus Christ, the true catalyst, the Emmanuel that has come to the world. We touch people, and it's amazing what we do now. But I am absolutely convinced that what we gain, what we learn now, we will be able to use for God and His kingdom forever. Forever. Don't be slack in your gaining and in your learning. Don't be slack in the sense of understanding what the principles of the kingdom of God are. Because they will be profitable to you now. And forever. 
in the Spirit that they will bring to you that sense of godliness that is functional in this era and in this day and what is needed. You have been prepared for this time and this place. And the work of the Holy Spirit that is wrought within you is profitable. And obviously, we lay up a treasure for ourselves in heaven by what we have gained in the profit of training. Training well. 1 Timothy 1.5, please. What we aim at in our teaching is the love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some people have wandered off from these things and turned aside to foolish talk. A sincere faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. You have to read it, folks. You have to read it. You have to immerse yourself in what is there. Find a translation. Find some godly, wise commentator. Read it. Study it. Devour it. It's fascinating. I can remember when I was younger, people who were, you know, really old, 45, something like that. 53. (laughs) Oh, the Bible just continues to unfold itself. I never run out of what's truth within it. And I go, I've read it through a couple of times. That was being an idiot. One of the great, in fact, I have a teaching back there, one of the teachings that I just am overwhelmed by always, one of the great things of our God is that He is infinite. So when He speaks by His Spirit, there might be some words there, but they have infinite depth and understanding and meaning when the Holy Spirit reveals them to us. You can never exhaust it. And the beauty is what you see and you reflect is like the diamond in the various facets. It gives us understanding because I might not have seen that facet. But it also protects us. Paul warns Timothy, you know, there are those that have left the faith debating what they call knowledge. The concept was Gnosticism. This is about... Uh, 60 A.D., the church was barely 30 years old, and already a deceit had creeped into the church of the light, the knowledge, that certain people were given revelation greater than other people, and they had the light within them. And they would debate these nuances, and they would debate these various aspects of knowledge endlessly. Paul said, don't do that. Don't be like old women sitting around mumbling. He said, don't do that. And he wasn't grumbling at old ladies. He was just using it as an illustration. Don't do that. He said, the truth is there. Now, Gnosticism had a profound impact upon the church clear up until the 6th century. It almost destroyed it. It believed that there were levels. It took away the deity of Jesus Christ. This is why... Continually, Paul would refer to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully, truly God. Because they wanted to say, well, there's levels. And Jesus was at the highest level, and he had a brother. And it's the yin and the yang. It's the Cain and Abel. It's the good brother, the bad brother. And, of course, we know who the bad brother was. 
It was continuous in its demeaning of Jesus Christ and in the handling of all that was involved with trying to take away. One of the terms that I think of is that they tried to make it, Christianity, marketable. Because they were in a pagan culture with multiplicity of pantheons of gods. The Romans were wondrous at this. They would conquer nation, beat them to a pulp. So obviously their gods weren't worth spit. But because you never can be too careful, they would incorporate all their gods into their pantheon just because. So the Gnostics were really good at this in trying to bring understanding and the debate and to go on and 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 on. It amazes me how overwhelming our culture has been secularized in my lifetime. The statistics by those that are very good, Barnum is one, in evaluating the evangelical church are horrendous. 72% of the high school seniors in the church today will one year from now no longer be in the church and not come back. 72%. This is your time on stage. And the way that you will overcome the Gnosticism, the secular humanism of our era. See, our era, we say, here I am. The light's in me. Oh, do you see it? No, the light has come. The light has come to the world. I don't have any light in me. But the secular humanist says, I am my highest creation. I am the one that determines what is right and wrong. There are no absolutes. And of that I'm absolutely sure. And I determine, I determine what and who God is by what I see and say. Now wouldn't you love to serve a God that's that big? I don't think so. That's our Gnosticism. And then we are inundated in it continuously. We are inundated in a culture that continuously laughs at something that can't be seen or that is outside of yourself or that has faith in something. We're white-wing wacko Christians or something such as that. And it is amazing to me how no one can be maligned or somehow politically incorrectly spoke of other than a born-again Christian. But Jesus said, are you willing to be offended because of me? The spirit of this world hates Jesus Christ, and they will swallow anything, any religion, any concept, anything. Cal Thomas, a great Christian commentator, said, it's not that the agnostics believe nothing, it's that they'll believe anything. And that they will, except Jesus Christ. We have to have a sincere faith in the process of the Word and a sincere sense of commitment to a godly conscience. We live His truth. 
Idolatry is thinking, speaking of, or dealing with God in any way that is not true. That's idolatry. We have to be very, very careful that we do not raise up idols. But that we, reading the Word, have a good conscience of our behavior based on the Word. Not something that has been established through our reflection of what we think God is. We do not want to make God into our image, folks. We do not. We want to fully understand who He is. And then Paul says, not only a good conscience that we live, but that we understand the wisdom of how we deal with His Word. Elaine, would you read that portion from General Booth? This is a quote from General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He said, The chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. He wrote that at the very end of the 1800s, the end of the 19th century, as he moved into the 20th century. Talk about a catalyst for change. General John Booth of the Salvation Army was quite a catalyst for change, would you not say? And yet he saw it. He saw the idolatry that we would worship and serve a process rather than the Creator. That process became more important than principle. You can't have a heaven that you really believe in if there's not a hell to shun. You cannot have salvation if there's not truly repentance. It's a sham. It's an idolatry. He said we also have to have a pure heart. Prayer is what creates the pure heart. We must know to whom we pray. This is your time. You got to know the word. You have to know what it is and not create God in your image and idols. And you have to know the God that you pray to. You need to know Him in the fullness of His excellency. Study Him. Know Him. Understand Him. This world is not interested in another procedure. They're not interested in another way to find some point of success. They've had it up to here with feel-good sessions. We need to pound and pound and pound on who God is. That's what it's all for. Prayer. Would you read First Timothy? Um, it's First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that in treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. I tell Elaine I have this little rule. It's the first rule. If you're going to fly somewhere, when you get to the gate, you look out to see if there's a plane at the end of the jetway. First, the first rule is if you're going to go somewhere, there's got to be a plane. So 
Second rule is there should be a crew to fly that plane. Paul says, Timothy, here's the first rule of the church. Pray. Pray. I was at a group of ministers meeting together a few weeks ago, and there was a man there who was a missionary to uh, Cambodia. And he was talking about how that they are allowed to have certain home groups, but even then there is uh, great stress. And he said, when I first went five years ago, there was a home group that had about 50 in this home group and was doing very well. And they tried to keep their head down so that it wasn't too obvious or in the face of blatant. He said, shortly after I arrived, they were having the home group. And the leader, the pastor of this home group, was standing in front of his group. And there was a window behind him. And two or three army officials walked up to the window behind him. And one pulled out a pistol and shot the pastor in the back of the head right in front of his group of people. Killed him in his own home. Now, if we were concerned that there might be somebody walk in this room and lead some of us off. Take our children away. Do you think we would pray for the leaders and authority over us the way we have been charged to be prayed? Oh, I think we would. Some say, but how can I pray for a leader who believes in abortion or in homosexuality? How could, That would be a compromise. How foolish is that? No! You pray, God, change their heart. God, give them wisdom and understanding. God, give us the freedom so that we can continue to worship. God, God, please, please, pour out Your Spirit. We are so, so blessed. We have been given so much. And we find all the reasons why we don't have to pray. Why we don't have to struggle with idols or with a process of creating a good conscience or truly reading the Word and growing in faith. We just say, well, we got a really nifty pastor. He's great. Isn't the worship wonderful? It was phenomenal, wasn't it? Don't you love it? And I'm speaking now without sarcasm. I loved the worship this morning. We have a great pastor. It's his job. It's Liz's job. It's all these other people's job. Oh... When you stand before Jesus Christ and His Father and give an account of the deeds done in the body, Steve is going to be off somewhere else rejoicing. It's just you and God, one-on-one. Pray. Pray. Pray for your country. Pray for your family. Pray for these dear leaders of this church. Pray for the wisdom of those that deal with you. I have a good friend in the church where we go, he had a boss who was a demon worshiper. And he thought, oh man, I don't know whether I should pray for him or not. But he got praying for him, and in one week's time, bam, the guy was gone. Pray. Pray. One of the great privileges that God has given us is the opportunity to every day to pray. It's a part of our ministry. We pray for family and ministers and missionaries, our neighbors, 
and people that God has brought to us around the world. I only say that because I believe it. So I'm saying to you, do it. Pray. Pray. And what does this do for us? It creates the love of God in us. The love of God that shines forth. That's our aim. It's our aim to complete our worship. Worship is recognizing God's worth. Do you realize that? How much is God worth to you? What do you think of God? That's what worship is. Elaine, would you read those two portions, please? These are thoughts taken from the book For All God's Worth by N.T. Wright. Worship is nothing more nor less than love on its knees before the Beloved, just as mission is love on its feet to serve the Beloved, and just as communion is love embracing the Beloved and so being strengthened for service. And then this next portion, um, the author has taken the love chapter and he's inserted the word worship instead of love. Not that worship is more important than love, but he uses it as reflecting of our giving back to God. And so it's with that in mind, I'll start through this. Though we sing with the tongues of men and of angels, if we are not truly worshiping the living God, we are noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Though we organize the service order most beautifully, if it does not enable us to worship the living God, we are mere ballet dancers. Though we recarpet the floors and rework the platform, though we balance our budgets and give to missions, if we are not worshiping God, we are nothing. Worship is humble and glad. Worship forgets itself in remembering God. Worship celebrates the truth as God's truth, not its own. True worship doesn't put on a show or make a fuss. True worship isn't forced, isn't half-hearted, doesn't keep looking at its watch, doesn't worry what the person in the next seat may be doing. True worship is open to God, adoring God, waiting for God, trusting God, even in the dark. Worship will never end. Whether there be buildings, they will crumble. Whether there be committees, they will fall asleep. Whether there be budgets, they will add up to nothing. For we build for the present age. We discuss for the present age. And we pay for the present age. But when the age to come is here, the present age will be done away. For now we see the beauty of God through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, now we appreciate only part. But when we shall affirm, but then we shall affirm and appreciate God, even as the living God has affirmed and appreciated us. So now our tasks are worship, mission, and management, these three. 
But the greatest of these is worship. Thank you. Our time on stage. We want to become fully human. Satan robs so much. Robs so much. And God's purpose is to make us fully human. So when the heaven and the earth become one, we can worship and serve Him forever. It's our point to become fully human in what God wanted us to be. There's an amazing story in the second chapter of Luke, beginning with the 41st verse, about two guardians that the more I study them, the more I'm awed. Now, please understand this. You think, well, that was Mary and Joseph. They should have. No, 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 no. Everybody, everybody has to deal by faith. How would you guys like to have had the faith, living in a culture where your wife and her purity and all the rest of that was of paramounts, and you find out that you're betrothed, you know, they didn't have a frog to die or, you know, a little strip to see what color it was, so they just didn't, they, they had an engagement, but they didn't have union of that engagement for a year. And in the middle of that year, after she had been gone three months up into the hills to visit her cousin Elizabeth, she comes back and says, oh, and by the way, I'm pregnant. Now, how would you like to have dealt with that? Well, he was going to put her away privately until an angel comes in the middle of the night with a dream and says, Joseph, don't do it. This is of me. Marry this girl. Now, you wake up in the morning. Have you ever had a dream or a vision in the middle of the night and you're just absolutely pumped, charged, and you wake up in the morning and you go, oh, my gracious, what was I thinking? Obviously, it was too much pizza. I, you know, I just can't do that. How do you think Joseph felt that next morning? I mean, they could count to nine back then. All of his peers were going to go, you're what? <laughs> I'm sure when he told mom and dad, they must have thought, Joseph, Joseph, what did you do? I didn't do it. She said an angel did it. Probably mom said, oh, dear mother of God. <laughs> and Joseph said, and Joseph said, and how did you know? See, for the rest of her life, ladies, think of this, for the rest of her life, she realized only God and she knew for sure. Yes. How would you have liked to have been the guardian? My wife and I have developed a new tradition. Maybe three years old, but it's a tradition now. On Christmas, you know, we like to watch Scrooge, and we've sometimes watched A Wonderful Life. I don't really like Miracle on 54th Street that much. But what I do like is the movie Nativity. Have any of you seen Nativity? Amazing movie. Absolutely amazing. While Mary and Joseph are trying to get to Bethlehem, Joseph is, you know, not eating his food, sneaking some to the donkey and letting Mary have all that she wants. And they're laying on the beach, rocks, because there's no place. And Mary looks at Joseph and says, Don't you wonder? Don't you wonder when we'll know? How would you like to have been the mother of God? 
How would you like to have done that? How would you raise that child? Every time his siblings got messing around with him, what would you think? Don't mess with him. He might open up the earth and swallow you. Don't. <laughs> How would you like to have been his father? Oh, my goodness. In the fullness of time. God chose them. And he's chosen you to be just as responsible, just as powerfully involved. Jesus is 12 years old. They go to Jerusalem to the Passover, the greatest of the feasts. They've done it every year. He is now a young man. He will enter into his heritage of Judaism at age 12. They're there through the Passover. When the time was over, they've done this routine all the time. Joseph or Jesus knew that his family, his parents, and those that had come up from Nazareth would be walking back down to home. It was a two-day walk. Two or three hours into that walk, Mary looks to Joseph and says, Joe, have you seen Jesus recently? No, I haven't. Well, you know, where is he? Now, this is how dads do. Mary, he's a young man now. He's off with the guys. He's all right. Don't worry. You hear that? Two or three hours later, Mary looks at Joseph and says, Joseph? I don't know what his middle name was, but I bet she used it. (laughs) Joseph, son of David. (laughs) And they ask everybody, and nobody had seen. And Joseph can hear, I told you so, Joseph. Well, where did you last see him? Back in Jerusalem. They look for three days. They can't find him. Can you imagine, ladies? Can you imagine? Oh, dear God, don't strike me dead. I'm so sorry. I lost the Messiah. I lost the Messiah. Well, where did you last see him? Here, in the temple. Oh, these lines are just staggering. Jesus, Mary says, Jesus, why would you do this to us? But mom, don't you realize I had to be about my father's business? Oh, can you imagine? He knew. But here it was, that moment had come. Mary knew. And she knew in her heart from the prophecy of the old prophet Simeon that a sword would pierce her heart. Here it was. But here's the kind of guardians. And Jesus returned with them and grew in stature and wisdom unto God and to man and remained in subjection to his parents. They were guardians. No more, no less. No greater, no more privileged. They were just guardians. And obviously, 
We have been called for this day, for this era. Guard well, Timothy. Guard well. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would take your word and its wisdom and apply it to our hearts. Let nothing of self be wrought or established. And Father, I pray your blessing upon upon this congregation and its leadership, that you would cover it with a hedge of protection of the blood of the cross. We rebuke the devourer, you vile spirit that would destroy or hinder or rob. And I pray that as people come in contact, as individuals of this church come in contact, that people will be drawn not by a name or a style or a personality, but they'll be drawn by the light of Jesus Christ and that this church might mightily grow in this region and area of this state and this northwest that is so selfish, so self-centered, so immersed in the reemergence of Gnosticism. Dear God, dear God, we want to know You in the fullness of Your excellency, not some pop Christianity that feels good or is centered only around me, but is centered around the lovely name of Jesus Christ and all that He is. Bless this day. Use it for Your glory and honor's sake. In Jesus' name.